Welcome to Potter Revisited. I'm Tori. And I'm Shay. And today we are discussing the final chapter in Philosopher's Stone, The Man with Two Faces. Or, as we like to call it, Literary Whiplash. So I'm going to open with the opening of the chapter, which is, It was Quirrell, which is just such a good lovely opening sentence like I just it's just so perfect like the suspense at the end of the last chapter it wasn't Snape and then all of a sudden it was Quirrell like it's so well done I think my only complaint with that is that in the formatting of the book I was reading it's like the left side of the page was the first chapter was the previous chapter ending and the right side of the page was this chapter starting and I feel like it would have been so much more satisfying if I had to turn the page after it wasn't Snape in order to see it was Quirrell which is such a weird nitpicky thing but like be so much more satisfying. Yeah in the original it's like that but I was reading off the reprint with the new Scholastic covers that I got a couple years ago and it does have it it's a bigger font so it does have it on like a new page which is cool. Okay, because my edition that I'm using in right now anyway, it's the uh, published by Canada in 2000 Raincoat Books. So yeah, love that reveal. My other early thoughts, based on just quite top of the page, is uh, I love that Quirrell talks about Snape looking like an overgrown bat. As a person who both loves Snape and bats, it's delightful. I'm like, yes, absolutely, I'm on board. Kind of awful references, like when he... Um... Yeah, I think he's referred to as a bat a lot in the series, or at least like Harry thinks it, or he's just always there and he like disappears and appears. And doesn't he like transform himself into a bat or something when he leaves in the end of Deathly Hollows? No, he doesn't transform into anything, but he is the only wizard besides Voldemort who can fly without a broom. Right, that's what it was. So he just like full on flies out of there like a badass, like a bat out of hell. <laughs> Was the other point you had? Oh, yeah. More Snape. I've got a lot of Snape points. It's what I do. Yeah. Uh, I just think it's really interesting how shocked Harry was like, Snape was trying to save me? Because that entire line kind of defines the entire series and the majority of major plot twists in the series. Just that line. Snape was trying to save me. That's it. That's the series. Yeah, I guess. Like, it's true. I mean, I don't know how much it costs by, like, I know overall he was trying to save him, but I mean, like, I don't know if I classify, like, what he was really, was it, what are you doing really for Harry's benefit? <laughs> Keeping him from death. I mean, he wasn't building the guy's self-esteem. He certainly wasn't making for a good learning environment, but he was keeping him from dying, which is certainly more than some of the other professors were doing. Like we talked about last episode where Dumbledore's, like, just, like, casually setting up Harry to die. Best of luck, kid. You're 11. I think my fourth thing, I just felt so bad for Hagrid in this chapter. Like, I know we've ragged on Hagrid a lot, like, the last few episodes. It's just, like, how he's, like, not the most responsible adult. But, like, you know, he cares so much. And that's what we say. We, we love Hagrid. Like, he always has his heart in the right place. I think the thing about Hagrid is he always has the best intentions at heart. Which is almost the difference between Hagrid and Dumbledore, is Dumbledore has the worst intentions at heart. But we love Hagrid. Not as much as we love Professor Snape. Oh, that, that's you, not me. That was a transition, and it was golden. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, this is one of those glorious Harry Potter sass moments, when Harry, of course, says, Snape is trying to save me, and Dumbledore goes, Professor Snape. And Harry goes, yeah, him. <laughs> it's just, yes, him. So good. It's such a sassy moment. Such a, that's one of those things I love about Harry. The full sass. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, that guy. 
Yeah, Harry doesn't have much respect for Snape, and it's just continued where he just constantly, like, Dumbledore tells him, like, oh, he's your professor, he's, like, an authority figure, and Harry's like, yeah, whatever. I think we can all relate to there being, like, people who we were supposed to respect and see as authority figures in our life and being like, you know, I don't think so, not this one. We've got to draw the line somewhere. Well, that's what they say, respect goes two ways, and sometimes... Harry knows that Snape doesn't like him. He's never been shy. And Snape's never been shy about it. So he's like, "This guy doesn't like me. I don't like him." Yeah, not gonna waste my time being polite. Which fine, good for Harry. I love the Harry sass. I also love that the Weasley twins, ever so passionate about their one true joy in life, toilet seats, tried to send Harry a toilet seat. Beautiful, classic, golden twins. Not the first incidents of them in toilet seats, not the last incidents of them in toilet seats. But, uh, well, Ron being hilarious, when, uh, Harry's trying to explain to them Dumbledore's weird takes on death, which is a consistent theme throughout the entire series, Dumbledore and his opinions on death. But Ron thinks it's batshit, and so he's like, I always knew he was off his rocker. Ron's just honest, and honestly, he's not wrong. But I also love that they say... Even that they describe Ron in that moment as being even more impressed by his idol. So like he kind of idolizes Dumbledore, but in like a, he's crazy, but like, I'm okay with it way. And I love that. But he's, but he's cool. Just generally the plot twist was like, this, this is like probably the biggest plot twist in the yeah. first book. And I was just wondering, I don't know if you can remember like reading this for the first time. Cause I think you said that you always suspected it was someone else because it was too easy for it to be Snape. Yeah, I, I was, I mean, I, I've always been a very suspicious, true crimey type of gal. And I guess I just sort of, there's a part of me that he was always in the way, like Carrie's seeing something happen. They describe Hermione knocking Quirrell over on her way to distract Snape at the Quidditch game. It just seemed too convenient. He was too often that person that just happened to be there. And like, I don't know if it was a part of me just like not wanting the villain to have been Snape because that would have been really boring and not a, an exciting novel end so maybe that's part of why and it was like if it's not Snape and it's not like like Snape is the sort of the only real option provided kind of so I had to look at other options and if you kind of do that Quirrell is the Mm -hmm. best option yeah I didn't actually read this book before the movie came out because I was still pretty young so I already knew when I read this book I already knew it was Quirrell but I remember watching the movie and I think that's probably what started my like love of like plot twists and stuff that you don't expect because it's a children's book so it's not supposed to be too hard because I, I loved mystery shows like Scooby-Doo and stuff so it's always like yeah you kind of this is the first thing that was like a really like my first taste of like the the, the big switcheroo where you're, you're set up to think it's one person but it's actually one person that you wouldn't usually a person that you wouldn't suspect the literary whiplash loved it that's probably why I'm so much I'm so much into true crime and stuff these days and into crime shows because I just love the mystery. I noticed the second time I was reading this chapter that um, I thought this was a movieism, but it's actually in the book that Quirrell just snaps his fingers and ropes appear and tie Harry up. And I was wondering, is this some kind of reference to wandless magic? Yeah, I would think so. Because even like when Umbridge does her weird little rope tie spell, it's she uses her wand. Yeah, that's why I thought it was a movieism because I know they do that in the movie, but I always thought he used his wand. But it just kind of shot me because I just didn't think that Quirrell was a powerful enough wizard to do wellness magic because we do know it exists and we do know that it's like really difficult. So that's why I was kind of like, wonder if it was just kind of like a mistake or just an oversight. But then he also has Voldemort on the back of his head. So I mean, who knows? I mean, he does have Voldemort on the back of his head, but he's still a Quirrell because like the magic and the things he do does while Voldemort's there isn't overly impressive. So I feel like 
it's something Quirrell himself knows how to do. Having Voldemort there didn't make him more proficient at wandless magic. I would say that maybe, I mean, it's probably just a slip up on the part of the author, but if I want to make my brain happy, I would maybe just go with certain wizards can do wandless magic just for like the spells they do the most. Like Harry could probably do Expelliarmus wandless pretty early on in life if he tried because he does it so much. And Quirrell as a person seems like he maybe isn't the most combative. So it's like, it's almost like a defensive spell that can be used combatively. Like tying someone up means they can't attack you. You can stop them from doing something, but it isn't overly aggressive. So like that kind of makes sense to me for Quirrell. And also like if he's out in Albania searching for wild creatures, maybe that's a particularly useful spell because you can tie up the wild creatures. So maybe like he intentionally practiced that one because based on what he was doing at the time, it would be very prevalent. Yeah, I just think I thought, because I always, sometimes I in the earlier ones, I always get confused with what's a movieism and what is real because I do watch the movies, at least the first two quite a bit. So moving on, we get, we finally get the information that Snape and James Potter hated each other and which is why Snape hates Harry so much. The big reveal, the second big reveal. And I just like this because this kind of like goes through the whole series is Harry finally learns out like why Snape doesn't like him because Harry just has his gut feeling that Snape doesn't like him and he just doesn't really get it but he just goes like whatever I don't like Snape. And this is like the actual like reason is that Snape's a petty bitch and it's holding a grudge. (laughs) Honestly, I kind of want to give Snape a sucks account just for holding a crutch against a child, but I'll, I'll think about it. <laughs> yeah, he just needs some therapy. It's misdirected anger, okay? But it's interesting that, like, I guess this is, it's not, it's like a well-known thing that James and Snape can get along, I guess, because Quirrell knows this. And everyone knows, like, Hagrid probably knows, Dumbledore knows, because Dumbledore tells him at the end of the chapter. Yeah. Well, I feel like everyone who was, I mean, Quirrell wasn't, but most people who were in any way involved in the Order of the Phoenix sort of knew that there was treachery afoot there, and then anyone who went to school with them, and then anyone who likes gossip. So you got to assume Lucius Malfoy and them all know, because he seems like the type. And maybe they talk about it in the teacher's lounge. Casual, like, oh gosh, Stapes still mad at James Potter? Yep. He's dead. (laughs) He took his grudge to James Potter's grave. I don't particularly like James Potter. Like... I know we don't get a lot about him, and I'm sure he became a better adult than he was teenager, but, like, he seems like such a dick. <laughs> I feel like it's just because, yeah, we don't get a lot of James and Lily. We get more Lily because we have Snape's flashbacks and stuff, but I always just feel like we don't get a lot of James, which is unfortunate because we hear so much of him, but both of them are from unreliable narrat- narrators. So we have Snape, who doesn't like him, and we have his friends who worship him. So the true the true James is somewhere in the middle, and I like the idea of James, but but obviously, um, the Borders are a big like fan component of Harry Potter, and so everyone has their own interpretation of James from like what we know. So everyone's made him into more of a well-rounded character. But yeah, I I feel sad that we don't get more of like what James was because you only get like probably the worst part of him, who was a bully when he's like fifteen in school, and then we get the best part of him where he literally like sacrifices himself to save his wife and kid. I feel like for me, the way I view James is that like morally he's a good person who will always do the right thing in big instances, like in wars he'll take the good side. He wants to protect the innocent in battle, and he is going to be very defensive of his friends. So like innately he's a he's a good person but a dick. So like he probably is rude to people and makes fun of, he does like, his daily behaviors are probably kind of unpleasant for someone like me. I wouldn't enjoy him. He, but he's on the side of good, you know? 
he probably just... I just always interpreted him as just kind of being, like, a kid that had a lot of attention growing up. Like, you know, the story was that Jane's parents, like, conceived him, like, unexpectedly later in life. So he was obviously, like, doted upon, as it's like noted, compared to Snape, who didn't have great parents. And I just feel like he is very personable and made friends really easily. And he just, like, was just kind of like a bratty kid. But I feel like... Yeah, he comes across a little bit like one of those people who thinks their presence is a gift to those around them. And he had his guest men growing up, too. Like, I, I have a little brother, and, like, you, like, it's just, like, boys with their friends, and when they're good at something, it's just, like, that mentality. But the thing is, like, those boys grew up. I just feel like he was just definitely, like, a popular kid that had a lot of attention on him, and what made him grow up was the change in the war. Like, who knows what he would have been, but I feel like when you're faced with such, like, a, like a big like world event going on like you either you you grow up or you're like or not and I just feel like he had to he grew up eventually because I feel like Lily wouldn't have married him if he was a dick so the truth of James lies he's someone you would stand next to in the battle but you wouldn't invite to your barbecue yeah I feel like James character lies somewhere in the middle between how Sirius and Remus talk about him and how Snape remembers him yeah, I feel like Remus is probably a better judge of character because there's definitely times where you can sort of see Remus being like, yeah, he did some things. Because well, yeah, Remus actually grew into an adult because when when Sirius talks about him, Sirius was in- incarcerated for like 12 years. And so he's mentally probably 20. So his, his yeah, James was his best friend, basically his brother. So he like basically, and he's dead. So he just worships him and he won't tarnish his memory. But I feel like Remus basically grew up thinking his friend was a murderer and he lost his one friend and his other friend was dead. And I feel like he probably remembers things a bit more clearly because he grew up more normally than Sirius did. So yeah, somewhere in the middle is James Potter. And I do have my own version of him in fandom who is a bit more fleshed out and... I think for me as a Snape girl, part of me like wants to dislike Jane, which is awful. Like Lily has every right to make her own choices, you know? So good for her, strong, independent woman. But I just... I'm like, "Mm, James seems like he would have picked on me in high school. So I don't think I like him. Is basically, I think, what it comes down to. Yeah, I I think I just, there's characters that I like, but I would never be friends with because I wouldn't get along with them. But I just like their characters. (laughs) Moving away from the the Marauders discourse that we just jumped into. (laughs) It's unexpected, (laughs) but necessary. So you have this line here that um, Voldemort says to Harry. Oh yeah, there's no good and evil, only power, and those too weak to seek it. It's a great line. It's, it's very clearly sort of like encapsulates how Voldemort sees the world. There yeah. being no good evil, there's only power. Like either you're good enough to seek out power or you're not and that's it. And it's just very interesting. He just trying to manipulate Harry because he's like, he's like, join me or you die. I'm just like, there's no way he joins you when he lives. Yeah, but none of this makes any sense. So I, like we talked about last chapter, or last episode, how Dumbledore kind of wanted Harry to face Voldemort to test him, like how he would deal with facing Voldemort. And I don't know, maybe he thought Voldemort would try to manipulate him because I know in the movie, Voldemort promises to bring his parents back and Dumbledore tells him, oh, there's no way to like bring the dead back. So Harry faces Voldemort and he's already just like, hell no, I'm not going to the dark side. I mean, I think it helps that like he's been primed this is the bad guy everyone hates and also he murdered your parents. So it's pretty easy to like, even as a child, be like, that's not the side I want to be on. You know what? I am a, I'm, tr- I'm 11, but this guy literally murdered my parents and all my friends say he's awful. So going on to, um, we know that at some point Voldemort latched on to, he, Voldemort 
and Quirrell found each other when he's in Albania, but he didn't um, latch on to Quirrell until later. So I know Harry shakes Quirrell's hand when they meet in Diagon Alley before he steals the stuff. He tries to steal a stone. So was it after this that Voldemort attached onto him? Because we know now that when he when Harry touches Quirrell, it like hurts him. Yeah, interesting. It's hard to know because we know Voldemort was just a wisp of evil darkness hunting unicorns in the woods. But I don't know if he like could remove himself from Quirrell to go hunting and then reattach himself to Quirrell. Because part of me... Because yeah, he, he says that he wasn't... He was barely... He was like vapor. He said he wasn't like... So I was like, what kind of being was he? Because he wasn't like real. But he's somewhere in between. In my mind, he was just his piece of soul that was still around, right? Like he's just a fraction of a soul, bodiless, yeah. floating about. So I mean, I guess then it had to have been after that. So later on in the in the semester... Because yeah, I think Krull references that he's when he failed to steal the stone, he wanted to keep an eye on him, and that's why he attached himself. Yeah, so clearly it was... I mean, he tries to steal the stone from Gringotts before Harry sees Voldemort's wispiness in the woods, but some point after he sees the wispiness in the woods, I would say, um, Voldemort attached to Quirrell. I don't like growths. I have a particular, like, gross out about, like, mumps and things that, like, aren't supposed to be a part of like I don't know man and like the idea of like a whole person growing on the back of my head makes me so gives me the heebie-jeebies I don't like it and the way they describe it's actually kind of creepy just like a white face attached to the back of Curl's head with like blood red eyes and like a slit nose like it's creepy it's gross <laughs> it's like a zit that can talk I actually really liked uh, Harry and Voldemort's like actually talking face to face because Harry is just learning like his whole past like just this p- past year just about what happened to him and this is like literally coming face to the face with the guy who is the reason you don't have parents like the the reason why your life's been so awful and he handles it really well like he doesn't just cry and shout you suck which like i think probably 11 year old me would have done yeah we know harry is scared because we have this like internal monologue about like him just trying to like stall and like freaking out because Voldemort's there but like, yeah, Harry's like pretty, pretty a Gryffindor in this moment, I would say. Yeah, he's very much a Gryffindor. And he's really drink Dumbledore's Kool-Aid because he's just like, he's like, I'll never join you. He's like willing to like sacrifice himself. He's already Dumbledore's man through and through. <laughs> very much. Voldemort thinks that, that uh, Quirrell can kill Harry, which I mean, don't blame him. Harry's child and he knows like two spells. <laughs> but um, he, Harry touches Quirrell's hand to get him off of him and it starts burning him and I was wondering Dumbledore says it's because of like his mother's sacrifice and like the love she had for him which I'll talk about a bit later but I was wondering if it calls to be a horcrux thing because we know Harry's a horcrux and we know compared to like the diary locket that the containers that they're in so Harry's body's the container the soul's in if it was protecting itself because when Ron tries to kill the locket like it, it comes out to protect itself, and same with the diary. Tom Riddle comes out of the diary to protect the, its like the diary from being killed. That's super interesting because it's also Harry's protection from his mother in this instance. A Dumbledore goes on about how it's the strongest form of magic. It's love magic. It would be so interesting if Dumbledore, who preaches that forever, was wrong and it was actually the Horcrux, which is hate magic. Like it's not the nice, loving mother loves her kid magic. It's the Horcrux magic. It's evil and murder, and that is what protected you in that moment. Like, that's so much more complex, and I like that better, almost. Like, mother's love protecting you from death and stuff is swell, 
But like there's something more wholesome about that than I need personally. I kind of like the you screwed yourself over and it's going to continue to screw you over. Well, it just looks like because Voldemort tries to kill Harry for like the whole series and he never can because there's literally a part of him in it. And then when he does kill Harry, in quotations, it screws himself over because he just killed part of himself. It's literally, it's, it's beautiful literary irony is what it is. The irony of him having done the thing that causes him all this trouble, you know? It was a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's for sure. He brought it on himself. And I like that more than just mother's love is that strong. No offense to everyone else, but... It's almost a really preaches about that, but I never quite understood exactly how that works. It's just, it seems pretty vague. But I'll talk about that a bit later. But um, Harry wakes up in the hospital wing and Dumbledore says that he was doing so well on his own, but he was passed out for three days. So Dumbledore... What? I mean, like, you almost died, but you were doing really well up until the point where you almost died. At 11. Dumbledore has really questionable opinions on these things. It isn't like the second Harry-Dumbledore conversation, like, face-to-face, because the last time was, like, when they had the mere conversation. But it's just, like, Dumbledore's just so odd. And it's just, like, he comes out very likable, but you just know in the back of your head that, like, he intended everything. Yeah, he absolutely, yeah. He's very culpable. It's like, it would have been negligent homicide if Harry had died. You know what I'm saying? Dumbledore would have been charged with negligent homicide or aiding and abetting from a criminal perspective. Dumbledore should be an Azkaban. Seriously. <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's the episode title. Dumbledore should be an Azkaban. Lock him up. <laughs> Probably though. So you, have a, you have a quote here from Dumbledore. <laughs> I do. To a well-organized mind, death is just the next great adventure. It's such a Dumbledore thing to say. I was wondering if he's trying to phrase it because he may, at this point, kind of know that Harry has to die at some point or he might be thinking maybe he will die at, at some point. So he's just kind of phrasing it like, you know, dying's not that big of a deal. It's fine. I don't know if he like knows at that point that like Harry has the ability to sort of survive death again. I feel like it's more of a Dumbledore like buttering him up for the fact that like, not he'll have to die but he could potentially die as part of this just like trying to fight ball like he's like we want harry who probably knows there's a chance that he'll die to not be worried about it you know we don't want him to worry about his safety we want him to worry about his job at 11 of killing a grown man because i loved this quote when i was a kid but now looking back at it i'm just like is he trying to like kind of he's trying to steer harry into like doing what he wants yeah being a gryffindor (laughs) Being reckless. I also think it's um, Dumbledore trying to be funny a bit when he's like, oh, it's a complete secret what happened. So naturally the whole school knows. But my top concern is who the heck told them? Hermione and Ron were down there, but Hermione doesn't know what happened with Harry because she wasn't there. And Ron doesn't know what happened with Hermione and Harry because he wasn't there. So like no one knows what happened once Hermione turned around and left the room with the potions. So who told them? Like Dumbledore? Dumbledore. I could just see Dumbledore spreading a rumor. Just casually started like telling everyone in school. You know how things spread around? Because like schools are like that. Like once one person hears something, they tell it to their friends. And then someone overhears them telling their friends. So then another version of it. Absolutely. Like I understand how they knew some of it. But it sounds like people knew a lot more than just the parts Hermione and Ron were present for. Right? And literally the only people who knew that at that point was Dumbledore and Harry, which meant Dumbledore went and told Minerva, and then Minerva told Flitwick. Dumbledore probably had to tell the teachers what happened, so they were, like, aware. Yeah. 
Okay, and then one of the teachers probably... Yeah, then the teachers probably were talking amongst themselves. Hagrid, <laughs> let it slip. Hagrid probably knew. Hagrid probably spoiled the whole thing. <laughs> She's like crying about it and everyone's like, oh, okay. Harry almost died and this is how it almost happened and it's all my fault. Yeah, that checks out. And then there's the Weasley twins just behind the corner taking notes like, and then Ron did something. Oh, good for Ron. <laughs> but uh, you have the quote here. Fear of the name only increases fear of the thing itself. I think it's very interesting that in the sentence in which Dumbledore says it's important to call things by their proper names, he neglects to call Voldemort by his proper name, which is Tom, Tom Riddle. I think it's particularly weird because when Tom chose that name or the title of Lord Voldemort, he chose it in an attempt to distinguish himself as being superior to normal wizards. He's a lord and it's associated with his sort of idea of being superior so I think it's particularly strange that Dumbledore sort of respects that choice and uses that title when I think Tom makes more sense because a big thing about Dumbledore's view of Tom Riddle is that in fact he is just a human he's a regular wizard you know and in the book itself he dies like a regular wizard so I think it would have made more sense for Dumbledore to not sort of call out Harry for not calling Voldemort by his proper name when he himself, Dumbledore, neglected to do so. Well, it's the only name Harry knows. Harry doesn't know his name's Tom Riddle, which probably would have helped him for the next book if Dumbledore had actually told him that. Imagine if Dumbledore had shared valuable information. Before it became useful. Oh my god. But I was like, this is like the growth of Harry, because the whole book, he's being told about Voldemort, but he keeps messing up and saying the name by accident and all Everyone there is like, oh, don't say the name, don't say the name. And he gets all, he stumbles around it and the name makes him, you know, who kind of freaks him out. And I'm just like, you know what? No, just call him Voldemort. It's not a big deal. And it's like, like, I think he's always just trying to set up not to be afraid of Voldemort because this is like he, the first time he's faced him and he's like, you know what? It's call him by his name. And yeah, but if you can survive him twice, you can call him Frank if it makes you happy. Like, <laughs> but I just think it's weird that like in the sentence saying call him his proper name, he he uses the name Voldemort. It's, it, it's just an interesting choice. So Harry asks Dumbledore about why he like survived basically. And Dumbledore explains about the um, sacri Lily sacrificed herself and because she sacrificed herself and she loved him that she has, he has protection from her and it's why he has to live the Dursleys, et cetera, et cetera. And I really don't get that because I feel like James sacrificed himself for Lily and Harry. So why weren't they both have protection? Like, I just like, is there something else you have to do? Or is it just like between mother and son? I think it's the choice because Snape's deal with Voldemort was don't kill Lily. And so I think Voldemort gave her a choice. He was gonna kill James no matter what. James was gonna be in the way. James didn't have a choice in Voldemort's mind. He's like, I'm not, you don't have the option. I'm killing you. But he gave Lily an option. He said, get out of the way and let me murder your baby wonderful option or let me murder you and then I'll murder your baby and because she had the option and she chose not to is I think what makes it I don't know like because James probably didn't think the option existed not saying that he would say yeah sure just go kill them but the option wasn't even made aware to him and no one would assume that option exists in that moment but because Lily had that option to just yeah that makes sense do we think that Voldemort actually would have spared Lily though like maybe if she in like an alternate universe where she actually lets him kill, like attempt to kill Harry, do we actually think like, he wouldn't do anything to her? It just doesn't feel in character for Voldemort to spare this one person in the grand scheme of things. I think if Harry's dead, 
Lily Potter has no purpose in Voldemort's life anymore. And Severus Snape is a good ally. So I don't think he would spare Lily out of like respect or like honesty in his deal with Snape. He would do it because if he can go back and tell Snape, yeah, she's still alive, he will have improved the likelihood of keeping Snape loyal to him for longer. So he wouldn't do it like because of the deal. He would do it because there's long-term benefits for him, Voldemort, having done that for Snape. Yeah, I just feel like because Lily is muggle-born, so she's like everything. He doesn't want a part of his new world. So I just feel like, I don't know if I really trust him to like maybe he spares Lily at this one point, but in the grand scheme of things, she's not really spared. Yeah, I think... The fact that Harry didn't die and she did special magic that James didn't do is sort of the support of the fact that she must have had the option. Because otherwise, like you said, it doesn't really make sense why James's sacrifice didn't really do magic special protectee. Gosh, my words are amazing <laughs> today, magic special protectee. One thing I wondered was, um, so Harry asks Dumbledore, the question we all want to know is why did Voldemort try to kill him anyway? He was just a baby. Like, what the hell? And Dumbledore was like, oh, I can't answer you that because you're too young. But I was like, could he not give him like an age appropriate answer? Because I just feel he delays telling Harry anything for so long. And even in the fifth book, when he says, I'll tell you everything, he doesn't even tell him everything. Not even a fraction of everything. Yeah. And all these things that happened to Harry could be prevented if Dumbledore just gave him like a hint of information. And just like kids are more like resilient than you think. And he doesn't have to tell Harry, but like the pro he could just say like there was um, a prediction made that a child would be born that would defeat Voldemort. Or maybe not even that, just just something that Harry can latch onto to give him context. Voldemort heard that a child born in this year is gonna be a bad time for him and he tried to get rid of you because he thought could have been you. And Harry could think he had already fulfilled the prophecy at that moment because he already got in Voldemort's way. Be like, all right, well, I've done it. Good work to me. Or he could just say that his parents were working like with against Voldemort's regime. And that's why he went there. Because that's part of the prophecy. Yeah, because Voldemort's a dick and you were a baby and Voldemort hates babies. Like, I just feel like he avoids things and he tries to tell Harry that it's because he cared about him. And I was like, bullshit. No. <laughs> I don't think Harry's feelings have ever been a concern for Albus Dumbledore. So just touching on Snape and James rivalry. So Dumbledore tells Harry that, like, they, they didn't get along. Basically compares them to Malfoy and Harry, but says that... James saved Snape's life and then Snape couldn't forgive him because in the Wizarding World there's like like the if someone saves you and you owe them like a debt and then James died before Snape could refill that. But I feel like that's very much glossing over it because Harry's literally saying Snape hates him and it's like oh no he had this thing with your father just a little rivalry not a big deal and like Snape, a Snape actively bullies him. <laughs> His whole year and then just brushes it off he could definitely make harry's life easier by telling harry like snape really hated your father and he shouldn't be taking it out on you but he is and i need to have him around so i'm gonna put up with it despite how miserable it makes you and all the other students good talk like like trying to make it he's gaslighting harry is what he's doing he's trying to make harry feel like his feelings aren't justified by trying to minimize Snape's treatment of him, which is uncool. I, as a Snape fan, think it's uncool. Yeah, he's just basically dangling Harry and Snape, just doing what he wants with them and just making them so uncomfortable. 
for no reason. Yeah. I think I've sort of come to the conclusion with Dumbledore that everyone thinks he's really wise because he's really good at like one-liners or like sort of vague, insightful sounding opinions and stances on things. But he's not actually, he's not the brightest crayon in the box. He's not the yellow crayon. I think it's like what his brother says is that he's like a smart guy, but like he just, he can't, he is not compassionate to people. Like obviously he's very brilliant and all the magic he knows, but he can't, he doesn't think of people like normal people do. Like they're expendable. So we talked about last episode how Dumbledore intended Harry and his friends to go face off of Voldemort and save the stone as some crazy thing because they're 11 and Harry was completely ready to die. And Ron actually picks it up. He's like, did you think that it was meant, he meant for you to do it? And Franny's like, what the fuck? That's terrible. But Harry is just kind of like, yeah, well, you know what? It's cool that he did it because he trusts me. <laughs> and he just like keeps drinking the Kool-Aid just like Hagrid. It really kind of feels like it's the kind of thing where like when you're younger, if someone treats you like you're older, you feel really cool about it. You're like, that's the coolest person. And then you become older and you're like, that was grotesquely inappropriate. <laughs> like, that's a kind of how I feel about it. Like, at the time as a kid, you think it's neat to be whatever, doing what you want and running around. And then as a grown up looking back, you're like, that's negligent. I wouldn't let a child do that. Yeah. Like, Hermione's the only one that's the reason. Like, Ron and Harry are just, like, adrenaline junkies. So, like, that's cool. And Harry just, like, thinks that Dumbledore trusts him and he wanted to give him a chance to do it on his own. But I'm just like, you're 11 years old. This person could have killed you. You've been in a coma for three days. Like, this this person's supposed to be looking out for you like an adult. And he, like, literally, like, almost got you killed. But he didn't die. Dumbledore must have known that's how it would go. It just worked out, I guess. So Hagrid comes to visit him, and apparently Hagrid's never drinking again. I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> Which I don't think lasts very long. Hagrid is self-aware enough to have known that alcohol had a negative impact on him and led to him giving up compromising information and risking the lives of people he loves. But hes it's legitimate addiction, and I think Hagrid should get some help after the Wizarding War because, sad, he deserves to not be swayed. You know? So Hagrid gives Harry, like I said earlier in the episode, um, this photo album that he mailed all his parents' old school friends for pictures. So Harry has this whole album full of pictures because he, Harry's like never actually seen them besides seeing them in the mirror, which is really sweet. And it really like warms my heart because as a kid, I don't think you appreciate like all these memories and stuff, but I'm such a nostalgic person and I just love looking back at photos and stuff. And like my parents are still alive. So I can't imagine how much more that means to Harry actually having like a tangible object to hold on to that's his parents and like their lives and just seeing them. Seeing them happy, you know what I mean? Yeah. And like knowing they lived full lives and they had all these friends, yeah. It's kind of grotesque that no one beforehand sent him pictures of his parents. And I just know, I always question like why Harry didn't ask more because obviously Hagrid like went out to all these people. I'm like, if like uh, Hagrid knows all his school friends, why wouldn't like Harry, Harry, or like, why wouldn't they reach out to him being like, here's a story about your parents when we were in school. I just feel like that's the kind of stuff that you love hearing as kids. It's like, like stories about your parents when they were like goofy or bad things, embarrassing things they did. And Harry doesn't have any of that because his parents aren't around. And I just feel like he has this one thing. I don't think Albus Dumbledore would have let Hagrid do that because then Harry would have all these other adult potential role mag models and figures he can like use to sort of feel close Ooh. to his parent and potentially have like substitute father figures. And he didn't want that because Dumbledore wants to entirely fill that role himself 
or have Hagrid fill it because he can entirely control Hagrid. It could make sense because Dumbledore keeps Harry very like reliant on him, Dumbledore, for information. Like he doesn't tell Harry anything. I mean, if you're one Harry started sending letters to Lupin because Lupin sent him a letter being like, hi, I knew your parents. This is the crazy shenanigans me and her dad used to get up to. He's going to write back and he's going to like build those bonds up and then he's not A, as in reliant on Dumbledore for like adult approval, but also he's going to get alternative sides to stories and understandings of things. And I think Dumbledore wants to make sure that he tailors every bit of information Harry gets in a way that will encourage him to do what Dumbledore wants of him. What a dick. Well, moving on, they go to the feast and Ron gets some points. And Percy was, I just really like this because like Ron, Percy doesn't get along with a lot of his siblings, at least younger siblings. And I just like this idea of Percy boasting about his little brother being like, oh yeah, he got past McGonagall's chess chess set. Like, my brother's amazing. And so that's what Ron wants. He wants to be like approved of and... I know Percy, yeah, bragged about, and I know he doesn't get along with Percy because Percy and him are very opposite, but I just feel like that's a pretty big deal for, like, this perfect brother. I feel like it probably hit Ron harder than the house points, you know? Like, he was probably, like, like, the house points are fun, and they're going to feel real exciting this year, but, like, he's going to carry Percy having been proud of something he did with him for the rest of his life. Yeah. Yeah, as much as, like, they say that they don't like Percy, Percy's their brother, and, like, I just get that I'm the oldest sibling, so I don't really have this thing but like knowing your siblings like like approve of you is like good because as much as siblings fight like still family and like their approval means like a lot especially for Ron too knowing that he he feels like he's in a competition with all his brothers and that his brothers are really proud of him it's a big win for Ron and also a big win for Neville Neville wins 10 points Neville friggin Longbottom he's never gotten any points for anything and everyone's just and and Neville's someone that like he doesn't feel like good enough for anything like the true Gryffindor metamorphosis he goes through and that he's the one that pulls this whole thing together for the whole house. Is this the nicest thing Dumbledore's ever done? Maybe. For Neville at least. (laughs) It's really good for Neville. Like it's good for Gryffindor and like Neville should have had points but like to list Neville last when they were tied with Slytherin to despite the fact that it's only 10 points to have them be the most important 10 you know. Maybe Dumbledore was trying to like build Neville up because you talked about last episode how he he thought that Neville might be a part of the group. So he had that we had that herbology thing that would have been perfect for Neville, but Neville didn't end up going. But he still like has Neville in mind for something. So he's still trying to build Neville up because Neville could be useful down the line, which he is. That's that's a very good point. I think it's probably a he could be one of the people that helps Harry out to achieve the things I want. So I'm going to do what I can to like also start forming him into what I want him to be. I was going to say, I know we talked about Malfoy being little shit and he is, but I kind of feel bad that Slytherin like basically played by the rules. They did everything right and they end up losing because Dumbledore changes his mind last minute. And he goes about it also in the most cruel and dramatic way. Like it's the most exciting way for the Gryffindors, but he literally lists out the house points and says, well, Slytherin, I guess congratulations are in order. And then he's like, oh, but oh, wait, like he builds their hopes up just to pull them down. And I'm like, no wonder these poor children all turn out to be villains, most of them. It's like- It's their villain origin story. All they do is get abused at school and mistreated and like- Dumbledore's fault all of them become death eaters. Like, how did you become a bad guy? Well, remember Dumbledore? Oh, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Malfoy heard this and he's like, I'm gonna kill you. I uh, also like the sort of the final moment, the final sentence in the book where Harry's decided that he's going to enjoy his summer because- 
the Dursleys don't know about the no magic outside of Hogwarts grounds rule. So he's going to torture them psychologically all summer. And that's good for him. I love that. I mean, what is the point of family if not to psychologically torture each other? Always fun. I love psychologically torturing my family. <laughs> so I just think wrapping up, we should do like a little book wrap up. What was your general opinion of the first Harry Potter book? Well, I like it. <laughs> I liked it. It was, it was a good read. I have a couple of different closing thoughts. One of them is that I really like how basically Harry like builds up his strength and like beats a final boss at the end. Like it's very classic um, architecture of a story. It's almost video game-esque if you look at it, like the different levels. Yeah. Sneaking past Fluffy. Yeah, I remember playing this this computer game as a kid. It's like... It's like this is level one and he beat the level one final boss and he's going to the next, you know, and it's exciting. He's leveling up. Yeah. You can now do a spell, hypothetically, because again... I don't think he did a spell in the entire book. But I think going forward, we should count how many times he does a spell. We'll probably get sick of it pretty early on in the second book. But we should start doing that at least at the beginning of the second book to know when Harry does spells. We should honestly do a counter every time he does Expelliarmus. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, we should definitely keep an Expelliarmus counter. That's great. Continue with our Snape sucks counter or your Snape sucks counter. The total Snape sucks count for Philosopher's Stone is actually only four. 4.5 if I add a little point just for him holding a grudge against James and taking it out on Harry for no reason. But surprisingly tame for me. I also have a couple questions to take with me, sort of. Like, what exactly are the requirements to teach at Hogwarts? If Dumbledore likes you or not. That's that's all it seems like. Yeah, it kind of seems like it's the only wizarding school in this sort of section of Europe. And so it's pretty prestigious to teach there. There's only so many teaching positions. And it feels like some of these people are underqualified. I'm going to say it. it feels like there's some underqualification going on. And certainly some questionable hiring practices, which we will continue to see as the series progresses. But it's weird. I also uh, think it's cute that there's a chess game in it because it's just sort of a visual reminder of how Dumbledore sees Harry as nothing more than a pawn. Very true. You know, Dumbledore is playing the game and Harry might be more important than a pawn. I guess Harry is like, who's good in chess? Harry's the queen, but Dumbledore's the one playing chess. Moving him to where he needs to go. Using him as a tool to destroy the enemy <laughs> and building everything around him so that it's easier for him to do so. So um, I guess I love lists. I could do some lists, like my power rankings. I could talk about who I think is the most powerful so far. Clearly Dumbledore. I mean, he hasn't actually done too much to show us, but... We know that he's in charge, which is another kind of power. The fact, yeah, his authority adds a lot of magic. The fact that people we've seen do cool magic talk so highly of his magic adds to that. But also just, like, the amount that Voldemort is afraid of him. And the fact that, like, whatever he did after Harry passed out in the basement with Quirrell was so impressive and magical that like he doesn't even talk about it. We don't even need to know. He just Dumbledore'd it. You know, the fact that like Dumbledore being there immediately is the solution to the problem. He's definitely uh, painted as being the most powerful. Then I gotta say Snape. Like he did the, to me, the most interesting of the, uh, of the tasks to get through to the stone. And also... He's the most brilliant politically, I guess, because he seemed like he was the one who was on to Quirrell. He was the one who was actively acting against Quirrell and trying to, like, figure out what was going on. 
it's like a quiet like power like you know that he's like brilliant because of like the way that he did the logic test which is something so completely different yeah yeah he's like a political thinker i think there's like definitely deeper level plotting that snape does and like thinking things through in a way but also just like the fact that he the way he's described is kind of scary to me but not in like an overtly scary threatening sort of way like to me filch is a person who is not strong and not powerful but acts powerful like i'll chain you up like this and i could do this back in the day he's definitely someone that overcompensates yeah snape is like the opposite he's subtle he almost undercompensates if that makes sense but uh and then i would say the third most powerful is the back of coral's head it's a wisp of a person but it's so i'm giving it third uh mcgonagall I don't remember what she does, but it's awesome. Mini G is what you have on the list, and we should just start, we should we should call her that. I love that. I did write Mini G. My favorite prof, Mini G. And then, uh, who did I put as fifth? Miss Norris. No, that checks out. Miss Norris is very, very, like, as a cat, powerful. Can communicate with its owner, really clever, knows the rules of Hogwarts enough to know when it should be tattling on someone knows who's suspicious yeah her ability to find students making mischief she like senses it yeah i mean miss norris is i would say fifth most powerful character i was wondering what were the best foreshadowing moments that lead into the rest of the series because this book has a lot of foreshadowing for the end of this book but there's also like hints of what's going to come and the one i get is that dumbledore says that voldemort's not dead but he has been stopped this time but he will come back which leads into there's going to be another book and every book basically has harry stopping voldemort and his newest and newest thing he's doing sort of uh there's the foreshadowing early on with hagrid when he says that some people say voldemort's dead but we don't believe it and that they say that he's not really human or maybe he's not entirely human anymore that's a good foreshadow um you mentioned that Hermione mentions wolves, studying wolves for an exam. That could be a, a slight foreshadow for Lupin, as you mentioned. Um, what else is a good for? I mean, like, I feel like the Weasley family sweater is a foreshadow of the fact that Harry... Like, it's a Weasley family sweater. That's what it's called. So to me, it's highly symbolic of the fact that he's going to end up being a Weasley. I mean, he becomes a member of their family pretty quickly. But it's a sign that that's going to be a thing. Well, there's a lot of name drops in like this. And the one I can think of is we get Sirius's name mentioned in the first chapter. He won't come in until Prisoner of There's a few little things like that. Like, just little things. Nothing really, I don't think anything really huge comes up besides the Voldemort thing. Because that's just going to be the ongoing part of the series that's sitting up. That there's going to be more books. But I think as we get into the next few books, there's going to be more things that kind of set up for the whole series will be interesting to look at. And speaking of my Snape sucks count, I have a total of four sucky moments, which surprised me because I thought there'd be more, but I feel like I was trying to restrain myself and not just not give him points every time he spoke like I would like to. I kind of want to give him a, like at least a half point just for holding a grudge against James and to take it out on Harry because that's not fair. But I could probably wait till later because he probably does more sucky things that are more related to James. You know what? I, I have a, a new opinion, fresh opinion on Snape's hatred of James. You know when you're having an argument with someone and then they leave partway through and you still have all these good points and you're, you're fired up because you were passionate about your argument and they just leave and you're standing there and you like 
want to finish the conversation but they're not there and maybe you turn to another person who's around and you try and like why did they say that when this is the way it is and this and this and like that person's like why are you why are you having this argument with me we're not we didn't have we weren't having that argument you were having that debate with someone else I think that's what happened to Snape sort of it was like he was in a very passionate distaste or situation or confrontation emotionally between James for so long and it just was building up and he never really got to have it out with him he never really got to they never really got to come to a conclusion like I said they always think there's gonna be more time to settle things like I think ideally he hoped that at some point in his life that he could make up with Lily and be friends again but obviously that didn't happen so he has all this like it's anger blue balls that's what I'm gonna <laughs> that's what I'm calling it I'm, oh, uh, I'm coy- but like when you're you're so built up about this thing and you're like I just need to we need to resolve this this needs to come to fruition we need to like conclude this because I have a lot more to say and I need to say it and then James Potter died and Snape was like but I still have all this and so in Snape's mind he's like finishing the argument with Harry which is not good but I think that's sort of because like it's yeah he kind of equates Harry as being James just because Harry looks like James but the thing is Harry isn't James (laughs) he's Harry but anyway I want to go through some of my favorites um I think you talked about how the MVP your MVP characters were Ron and Neville and I do think those characters really stand out in this book specifically like we meet all the characters in this book so obviously it's just we're just kind of warming up the characters but I do think that Ron and Neville stand out really well. I think um, because of how Ron is portrayed in the movies, I just love seeing, reading more about book Ron, just how great he is, not even just as a friend, as a character, but just like all the information you get from him and just how like authentic it is. And I know Ron's kind of like wishy-washy in the fandom, but do love Ron. And I just love more how he's, I always forget like how much the movies takes out of his character until I read the books again. And then you just remember like how much Ron does and just more he's just a more authentic character than more of like a stand-in in the movies and moving back to Neville I just think it's setting up Neville too because he's just kind of this oddball out in the beginning and I do think that it's like nice to see we get his full payoff in the last book but just to see like how far he's already come from starting Hogwarts to how he ends the year and I just think he has so many more standout moments but like He's going to get there and his metamorphosis is going to be beautiful. He's going to be a beautiful butterfly. But uh, some of my favorite moments were um, finding out how much Hagrid drinks just in this book. I think we talked about it a lot, but it's a lot. It's really, it's kind of funny. Also, on a more sensitive note, I actually really loved the Mirror of Erised kind of chapter, but also just like the moment of Harry seeing his parents in the mirror and just reading it as an adult. I think I got a bit emotional when we were recording it because it's like the fact that he's, we, learned that he's never even saw what his parents look like and he's just seeing them in a mirror and it's not real and just like the despair he goes into like i think that hit it hits more when you're old (laughs) and of course i love the ron harmony banter i just feel like like the the banter they have back and forth like their little one-liners between each other especially when they're telling harry you not to play quidditch they're like break your leg really break your leg just stuff like that i love like all like the little friendship moments and some of my favorite chapters were Diagon Alley, of course, because I loved learning about everything. Because that's kind of just like basically an exposition of Hager just explaining the Wizarding World, which is fun. I love Journey to Hogwarts Express because I love the going to Hogwarts chapters and all the books. I just love them being on the train and just like the stuff going on. And always the Midnight Duel is also really fun. It's really short, but it's just like it's like really high action. The fact that all these things are happening all at once and they're running around the castle trying to escape Filch and crazy stuff's happening. 
And of course, obviously, the last two chapters are great with for the, the big reveal. And my favorite class is probably charms at this point. I just feel like the charms are fun stuff, like making a pineapple dance, dance across the table for an exam sounds really fun. And favorite location right now is probably Diagon Alley because it sounds really cool. And I love little little shops in a little like downtown strip. And my favorite prof is McGonagall, as always. Mini G. <laughs> what about you? <laughs> I think I, I sort of ranked my uh, favorites or characters using the uh, wizarding grading schematic of O for outstanding, E for exceeds expectations, A for acceptable, P for poor, D for dreadful, and T for troll. So for outstanding, I went with Ron. Uh, he is everything you want in like a supportive best friend character to the lead. And then he sort of takes it a step further with the type of sense of humor her ha he has, the way he supports people, the level of backstory we have. We already understand his family dynamics and how that's impacted the person he is. We already sort of know his character flaws that, but we also sort of know his character strengths. He does such a good job of bridging what Harry and Hermione know with his understanding of the wizarding world and just the attitude he has like when he immediately knows not only is he going with Harry but Hermione's going and he doesn't even have to question her about it he's just like well the three of us fit under the cloak. Exceeding expectations goes to Neville and Harry. Neville because you expect so little of him in the way that like you don't expect much. He's bumbling. He's confused. He can't find his frog. He's goofy. He's getting in the way. He's getting caught. He's bumbling is sort of the term. And yet he does learn to stand up for himself. He does beat up Draco. He does do all these things that early on, like we forget because Neville does so many big, huge, influential things later in the series. You forget that like for an 11 year old, he sort of conquered his dragon in book one you know Harry doesn't even get one until the fourth book and so I and again he sees Snape every day and that's the thing he fears most and he goes to potions still you know so Neville exceeds expectations Harry has everything you need in the lead but then also is so sassy you know like they didn't that wasn't needed to make the series but it makes Harry so much better and not bland like I think a lot of the times I think especially as a children's book having a because Harry's who we get the most out of like his thoughts his feelings and if he was just like a basic hero character it'd be kind of boring but I think because he's a typical child and he has like sassy remarks and one and he's witty it, it reads better and you relate more to him as a main character when you're reading as a kid because I feel like as a kid like some they can do characters really blandly and you won't like you don't care and then um, my next rating is acceptable as Hermione. Don't get mad. I know she would never get an A on actual tests. But just because she sort of introduced and comes in already being like the expectations for her are pretty high. They're like, oh, she's really smart. Oh, she's really good at this. Oh, she's really good at that. So it's sort of like what I expected. And there are little things she does, like the way she manipulates Harry and Ron into like starting a friendship and things like that that I really quite enjoyed. But I don't think they were like beyond what I wanted from her based on how she was introduced sort of. As you, once you start to know Hermione, everything she sort of does in this book is what you would anticipate. So it's acceptable. Uh, for poor, I went with Hagrid. Sorry. He, uh, A, he shouldn't be drinking so much around children. It's not good for him and it's not good for them. He probably shouldn't be drinking at all if he like flubs his 
secrets. And despite the fact that he's a great person, he really has a very negative impact on the overall, like, safety of the children. And uh, he's so easily manipulated by Dumbledore that he is actively manipulating Harry and doesn't even know it. So a little bit of self-awareness and, like, reflection would do good for Hagrid. And then for Dreadful, I went with Dumbledore. D for Dumbledore. Because <laughs> he's a dick. Because uh, he's manipulating children, risking their lives. He can't run a school. Abusing Snape's emotional state. Um, risking lives of children. Did I mention that one? He uses Hogwarts as his own personal, like, hiding place. Yeah, his own personal, like, playground. He's playing The Sims, is what he's doing. He's like, I'm gonna put Harry in this room. I'm gonna put a bunch of fireplaces and ovens, and I'm gonna have him make toaster pastries in all the ovens, and then I'm gonna take the door away and see what happens. Goddamn Dumbledore. And uh, then for Troll, I went with The Troll, because it was quite trollish. (laughs) Yeah, so that's, uh, those are my ratings. Um, I guess... That answers stand-up characters. Um, I don't know if I have a specific favorite chapter. I love Through the Trapdoor. Um, I love the Potions Master just because we meet Snape. And again, even as a child, there was something about Snape that I was like, hmm, hmm. Now I'm like, hmm, it's different. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, I think that's sort of my big takeaways going forward. I think for me, as we progress to the other novels, I will keep my grading scale going and do it at the end of each book so we can see. Yeah, I think we're going to keep doing a little wrap up at the end of each book just to like talk about the book as a whole and how each book stands out. Yeah, I agree. And which characters stand out and how our opinions change as the series goes on. Yeah, but next for us, we'll be watching the first movie, which will be cute to go back to. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pod Revisited and for joining us on this big chapter reread, which has been so much fun. And thanks everyone who has listened including our family and friends. And we'll be back again to discuss the first uh, Harry Potter movie. And as you close your book on the final page of this podcast season one, do take the time to like and subscribe on all of your podcast listening places as well as following us on Twitter. Facebook, Instagram. Yeah, do you have any thoughts about anything we've discussed on these last 17 episodes? or any ways that we could improve the podcast, uh, let us know. You can email us at potterrevisitedpodcast at gmail.com or reach us across anywhere on social media at Potter Revisited, and we'll see you next time. Bye!